Welcome to episode 6 of Women of the Military podcast. In today's episode, I interviewed Mandy Snell. Mandy was accepted and attended the Naval Academy. At one point in her career, she was told that she was the reason girls shouldn't join the military, but she overcame the challenges she faced to retire from the Navy as a lieutenant commander after 20 years of service. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome, Mandy. Hi. Can you give us a brief introduction about yourself? Okay. Um, I am actually a retired lieutenant commander. Um, I spent 10 years on active duty in the Navy and 10 years as a reservist. Um, And I also happen to be a Navy spouse. My husband retired about three years ago. Oh, wow. So you've done (laughs) active duty, reserves, and military spouse. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what led you to decide to join the military? Well, it's kind of a funny story. There's actually nobody in my family who really um, did a career in the military. Uh, I grew up in Hawaii. Back in the day, colleges used to actually send you like brochures in the mail. And there was one from the Naval Academy. And I put it in the pitch pile because I saw uniforms. And uh, my mom's like, oh, just save that for your dad. Okay. And then my dad's like, oh, oh, that's Annapolis. I said, okay. They're like, you, my parents are like, you've never heard of Annapolis, the state capital of Maryland? And the short story is I applied not expecting them to actually accept me, and I was offered a spot. So um, so I figured, well, go big or go home, and I took a chance on it. And that's actually how I got my start in the Navy. It's not very auspicious or, um, <laughs> or anything very grand, but it was just, you know, an opportunity that I saw present itself. And I figured, well, uh, I'll jump on it while it's here. So, so that's it. That's really cool. I like that story. <laughs> Did you happen to deploy while you were serving in the military? Yeah, multiple times. So I started out as a surface warfare officer, uh, and I ended up doing uh, two sea tours. And the first one, we deployed to South America, and the ship ran aground. That's another story entirely. Um, And then my second deployment actually occurred after 9-11, and that one went to the Gulf. So it was go straight to the Gulf see nothing but Bahrain, um, and, and then come back home. Uh, and then finally, as a reservist, I also mobilized back to Bahrain um, many years later, though. What was the difference between deploying during peacetime and then, like, wartime? Um, well, I would say going around doing UNITAS was kind of the attitude. I mean, if we were there for engagement, so it was kind of more of a, um, you go and you make friends with people in a foreign navy, you know, you do an exercise everybody high fives at the end of it, you eat, you drink, you know, whatever, and you move on to the next country. And then they, you know, everybody shares a little bit of their culture. And it was kind of, I guess it's kind of weird timing or God timing, however you want to put it. But um, the coal incident actually happened during that deployment. And that's kind of when, um, you know, the the switch flipped. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe we, we hadn't really had a, a war involving the Navy. And, you know, since even Desert Storm really didn't involve the Navy that greatly. So, I mean, you, you know what sacrifices you are signing up for, um, but it's, it's a little bit different when you actually, you know, I don't know, I guess it's different when you, you know, you see the little 9-11 memorials and, and you recognize faces in it, I guess. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I could see that. Yeah. What was the experience of being a female on a ship out at sea? I'm guessing you were in the minority. <laughs> oh, definitely. So, um, you know, back in the uh, the 90s, 
was it the Goldwater Nichols Act? I, anyway, um, um, the Navy, as part of the military, was um, directed to lift its ban on women on uh, surface combatants in the Navy. And at first, they didn't really, they said, okay, well, there's no ban. But they didn't actively push um, women onto ships. And part of it was you can't really put um, junior enlisted on ships without having either senior enlisted or officers on board. And it's hard to have senior enlisted in seagoing rates if they were never junior enlisted in seagoing rates. So the Navy solution was um, to put junior officers on ships. So actually my first division, uh, there were other women on the ship by the time I got there. So I wasn't the first, but um, my first division, I had 42 diesel mechanics. It was an all male uh, division. And unbeknownst to me, um, they had actually been investigated for running out some of the, the female engine men or diesel mechanics out of their division into a different division. Um, but nobody told me that before I got there. Uh, so it was a little bit of a, it was a little tough at first, but um, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood with all boys uh, and I have never been the fastest or the strongest. Um, but most of the time, if you're willing to, you know, take an interest in what people are doing and you, you don't really back down, you know, you, you don't have to be like, this. I'm, I'm never going to intimidate somebody physically. So I have to use my brain a little bit. Uh, and know when to back down and when not to back down. Um, and I, I think that was very helpful in kind of coming to an agreement with the division where, you know, we kind of all took care of each other. It worked out. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's tough, but it works out. What did you say your job was? You used to do surface warfare. Uh, the people, the, the officers who go to ships, right, they're designated surface warfare officers. So that could be anywhere between operations or engineering, uh, combat systems. Those are the types of um, jobs that you get as a surface warfare officer. You're, you're basically a jack of all trades. They're trying to train you to be the commanding officer of a ship. Oh, okay. Did you face any struggles while serving in the military? Oh, all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of struggles. <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> I guess um, start with did you or did you face any struggles specifically because you were a female? I think you touched on that a little bit. Kind of one of the unique or atypical struggles that I faced was actually, I, um, I did two sea tours as a single parent. So um, it's not something I typically advertise, but I actually, um, I got pregnant right after graduation. It wasn't planned. Um, the long story short is I was told by a number of senior officers uh, that you could not be a good uh, naval officer on a ship and be a good mother at the same time. But the way I saw it, I didn't really have a choice. So, you know, the Navy's got however many thousand ensigns, my son has one mom. I didn't have a choice. I had to do well at both. So um, it was really hard at first because I didn't really have a good role model to look up to at first. And I, I sort of lucked out in that my first CO was female Oh, wow. and she was divorced. Yeah. So the, so the neat thing, yeah, uh, I had a single mom to look up to sort of, I couldn't, it wasn't like girlfriends or anything because she's the commanding officer, but, um, right. <laughs> but at least I knew that, you know, I could look at her and I could look at her son and I knew that she had a career and he seemed to be a, you know, a good kid who wasn't like, you know, permanently damaged because his mom decided to pursue a career in the Navy. Like he was a good kid. He was a good student. He had a good relationship with both of his parents. And so I knew that, um, I just needed to figure out my own way to get there. But it, I, it was achievable. I just needed to figure out how to get there from where I was. Yeah, I can see how having her, just the guidance would be a good thing and kind of like mm -hmm. a lucky thing. When I deployed, my counterpart was a female and it was the only other female on all the different civil engineer teams. And I felt really lucky to have another female with me because if it had yeah. 
guy have been kind of like, oh, I can't hang out with you outside of work or just <laughs> a different situation. So it was nice to have another female. It was helpful not to be completely alone or isolated. And were you able to get a good support network to help you as a single mom? Or what were the ways or strategies? If someone else was in the military and was a single parent, what would what advice would you give them? Uh, well, I will say that the Navy is much more accommodating now than they were. My son's 19 now and he's, you know, he's in college. So it's it's been a long time. <laughs> right. Um, back in the day, you know, um, I actually didn't get priority for things like base housing or a spot in the, you know, the child development centers, like the base uh, daycare couldn't accommodate. There are a lot of things now that, you know, now they have a 24-7 center. Granted, it's one for fleet concentration area, but at least it's available. Right. Um, and that's available to dual military parents as well. I, I kind of felt um, my first deployment I, or my first ship, I think I mentioned I was from Hawaii, but they actually stationed me in Virginia Beach, um, which I felt was on purpose to isolate me from my family as far as humanly possible without actually breaking any rules. Uh, my second ship, I guess the detailer didn't get the message. So she actually PCS me back to Hawaii oh, okay. um, where I had, yeah, where I had friends and family there. And it was, it was like a cakewalk compared to being all by myself way across the country from the rest of my friends and family. So oddly enough, that's when 9-11 happened. And so um, my my family care plan had been to have my parents fly in from, you know, I grew up on a different island um, to get them and they weren't able to do it because the FAA shut all the flights down. But, uh, you know, luckily because I'm from here, you know, I haven't, I have aunties and cousins and, you know, friends that I grew up with and they were all kind of able to help me with Ethan until my parents were able to get here and bring him back to Hilo. Definitely build your network. It's very helpful. It is, it's a world of difference to have friends, whether it's, you know, through the military community as a single parent, very, very important. You have to have a team in place. You can't do it by yourself. Yeah, I think it's important no matter if you're a single parent or just a military spouse. We just Mm -hmm. moved from LA to Virginia and I'm like slowly building up my support network. It's really (laughs) hard because there's stuff that I want to do, but it's like I have Uh kids and I don't work full-time. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And so I don't have full-time childcare. So then it's like, how can I get to all these different events when I don't know anyone. In LA, I had a pretty good support network. So it's been it's been an adjustment for sure. Yeah, no, I think one of the hardest things about being a military spouse and moving with the kids is, you know, when you have to fill, fill out the registration form for emergency contacts with the kids yes. and you don't really have a name to put there and it just feels so lonely. We put the person that we I've known since college, but he's in the mm-hmm. military. And so it's kind of weird because it's like, you're not really going to be able, he's not going to be able to help. So then a few weeks yeah. in, I met, at a, I met a girl and I asked her at the bus stop, I was like, will you be my emergency contact? <laughs> that well. but she was a military spouse. So she's like, of course. But yeah, <laughs> yes, I know this school is like, who's your emergency contact? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. We've been here a week. Right. And they ask for two. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't know anybody yet. Can you give me a week? Let me go make friends fast. <laughs> Let me go awkwardly yeah. ask my neighbors if they'll be my emergency contact. Well, I found in an area like Virginia, um, you know, there's so many military families or people who are familiar with that, that they're willing to help. So I, I, you just have to ask. And I think that's the difference between being like a first tour person and a little more experience is the first time you feel like you're all by yourself and you're kind of afraid to ask for help. And by the, you know, second or third time around, you're like, yeah, all right, I got it. 
Right. Hey, you, you look pretty like normal. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> and even like this move was my second move as a military spouse. So I kind of knew what to expect in relation mm-hmm. to my husband going to work and me staying behind and unpacking. And before we would both like go to work and try and figure it all out in between. Well, we never actually put yeah. this together. So that that was new too. But it was just every time you do it, you kind of learn new things and how to adapt better. And Yeah, I totally agree. How did the military affect you as a person? Did it change you? Well, you know, that's a really good question because really my entire adult life, if I wasn't in the Navy directly, I was a reservist. And actually um, in my civilian career, I also was a Department of Navy (laughs) uh, civil servant. So it's definitely been a big part of my life. I assume it must have changed me somehow. um, But when I talk to people who are childhood friends, they're kind of like, oh, you're still you. It's just that you kind of found a thing where your personality traits are a good fit. So I think that's kind of what ended up happening. I found, I kind of found a, a place where, you know, my personality and my interests were a good fit for the opportunities that presented themselves within, you know, within the Navy. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. Because I feel like when I found the Air Force, I kind of felt like I found like my home or like what I was supposed to be doing my whole life. And it just was like where I needed to be and led me to the path of where I am now. I can see that. Well, it's kind of funny, right? Because it's a love-hate relationship. So there are some times where you kind of feel out of place and like you're an outsider and you don't really belong. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. So I just had my 20th class union. <laughs> and a, a lot of my classmates, I feel like they, um, maybe they don't feel necessarily like, you know, one of them described it as being surrounded by greatness, but not necessarily part of the greatness. It's kind of weird. So I, I kind of feel like I didn't really fit the mold that I felt they wanted me to fit, but I was still able to find a way to be myself and still do the things that needed to get done. And I, I feel like it was successful that way. And I'm okay with it because I found a way to, to still be myself, but to kind of still sit within the left and right goalposts. Right. Even if I wasn't quite the Navy poster child. (laughs) I think that's just like a made up thing that we all have in our minds. That's interesting that you mentioned the being surrounded by greatness, but not feeling it yourself. Because I've been thinking a lot about how with comparison, with whatever our experience is in the military, we can always Mm -hmm. compare it to someone else who's done something greater or something bigger. And it's something that sometimes people struggle with. Is it something that you've struggled with? I think it ebbs and it flows. So my first job for me was definitely what you would call a stretch job. <laughs> I My degrees in political science, I was already, you know, I, I came into it being told that I wasn't going to succeed, um, that all, you know, I was an example for why women should not be in the Navy and all this other thing, sort of thing, by some very senior people who had a lot of experience. And I had reason to believe that they were telling, you know, the truth as they saw it. Uh, and so I think at first I kind of felt like I didn't really deserve to be there. And to be honest, while I was at the academy, I had some folks who did tell me that I didn't deserve to be there. And, you know, the only reason I was there is because I'm female or because I'm a minority or I didn't have to worry as much or the standards were lower, um, which in retrospect, as it turns out, was not the case, right? Because you're looking for people who are going to do a career of service. And it ended up being that I stayed 
around in the Navy a lot longer than some of those folks who are telling me that I didn't really deserve a spot there. So I don't know in the end, you know, who was deserving and who wasn't. But I, even though at the time I felt like maybe I didn't quite um, measure up to everybody else around me, because there are really some incredibly smart and talented people, you know, in retrospect, I think I did okay. <laughs> you know, we're not all cut out to be, yeah, we're not all cut out to be like the top half of the class. You know, we like to point out, you know, John McCain's kind of our folk hero because he graduated fifth from the bottom and still okay. went on to do great things. <laughs> I did not know that. I knew he had graduated from Annapolis, but I didn't know that. Yeah, he graduated, you know, near the bottom of his class. Um, his roommate actually ended up being our superintendent. And we used to love to hear John McCain stories. We didn't care, you know, and the other part was when John McCain came to talk to us, it was, tell us Admiral Larson stories. But he also actually, I think he crashed the plane at flight school. And, you know, so, you know, by by um, traditional standards, maybe he did not have the world's most successful Navy career, but he was still an outstanding officer and somebody we all look up to. Right. Um, and it gave a lot of hope to those of us who kind of felt like we were there to make everybody else look good. <laughs> Did you feel like the people who were telling you these things that you didn't belong or that you that you got in easily were trying to get you to quit or just they just were upset that you were there or did you just not let it bother you? Well, I would be lying if I said it didn't bother me and it didn't cause me to question uh, whether or not I'd actually earned a spot there. Because I'm not the, you know, the star athlete or the straight A student. Um, and it's not that I feel like I'm dumb or completely inept. But I think what I came to realize after, you know, maybe far too many years <laughs> was uh, that we all have something to offer, right? And it's what makes us different. It's kind of like what they tell you in, in preschool, what makes you different really is what makes you special. And if everybody was exactly alike, I think the military would not function nearly as well as it does. And we would be, you know, devoid of innovation and creativity and problem solving. And a lot of the things that we do very well as an organization, um, in spite of the bureaucracy, probably wouldn't get done. I think it took a little bit of growing into um, and accepting that I was just going to find my own way to do things. And does it matter if I climb a rope with my arms or my feet? You know, if the objective is to climb the rope, then I'm going to climb that damn rope. That's what I've been telling people. And they're like, my story's not very good. And I was like, your story matters. <laughs> and everyone who served in the military has something to say. And don't compare yourself to someone else because mm -hmm. everyone has a part to play. Right. Do you have a favorite memory from your time in the Navy? There's a lot of stories. I love to tell stories, but um, probably my favorite would be the first reenlistment that I was asked to do. So to be asked to be a reenlisting officer um, for us is kind of a, at least when you're a junior officer, it's, it's kind of a bragging point. It's kind of like your guys accept you and look up to you and they're willing to make you part of their story. So the first reenlistment I was asked to do, I had a third class petty officer, that's an E4, um, who had a real hard time passing his exam. And he was, he was an outstanding um, technician. He was an outstanding technician. He never complained, never, you know, never any disciplinary issues, worked really hard, basically ran the work center for me, along with another third class, uh, because his work center supervisor actually um, and his LPO were not really strong. Um, so when he didn't get picked up or he didn't pass his exam, he didn't get picked up for promotion. And it, it was kind of a blow because he... Uh, come to find out, actually had a learning disability. I didn't know that. 
but we were able through a program that the Navy had um, called CAP, was Command Advancement Program. It's got a different name now. I don't remember exactly what it's called. But the, the commanding officer is allowed to uh, meritoriously promote a certain number of people. But for that particular cycle, he was only allowed to pick one. And because of the package I wrote, he picked my guy. Uh, and so that's the person who asked me to reenlist him. And we did it. And it's probably totally on PC and this would probably not fly in the Navy these days, but this was like over 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so we actually, I reenlisted him standing on a table in a Hooters. Yeah. With, you know, the pictures of beer waiting right. for it to go because you can't drink before you sign your paperwork. And it was a, it was a huge win for everybody because, you know, because he got, his work was recognized. Everybody else felt like their work was recognized. And to me, that was, that's a, that's like one of my favorite memories. And actually he's a master chief now. Yeah. I love the stories that people tell about the people that they worked with and how their lives interconnected. And I, those are my favorite stories that I've heard. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I have one last question. What would you tell girls who are considered joining the military? So, um, yeah, that's a great question. Especially since now um, some of my friends' daughters are about that age. I think if anything else, I would say um, don't sign up for anything without having somebody there with you. It's very important, if nothing else, to have a mentor in place. I wish that I recognized the significance of having a mentor earlier on. And not just like, you know, you can have men that are mentors. And I did have some men that provided some very good career advice and guidance at points that I really needed it. But it would have been helpful to me to also have reached out a little more proactively to other women. Um, and I think now that, you know, time has kind of gone on and there are, there are more women out there and they've had different career paths. It is really important. I think I would have not struggled as much. I probably had better success in my career as a whole had I reached out to other people uh, for advice, um, even though I felt like I didn't, you know, maybe I thought I didn't need it, but I actually did. And I didn't recognize it. So I think, um, if nothing else, kind of recognizing that even if you don't feel like you need help, you know, advice is always something you can take or leave. You might as well get it if you can. I think that would be my, my takeaway. So to get advice and not do it alone. I think that's right. good advice because you can go into a recruiter's office and end up signing up for something that you don't even really want to do and then end up walking away from the military because of a misunderstanding when you don't have that mentor by your side. Right. And I think that holds truth through a lot of um, career decision points. Yeah, it's definitely helpful to have your network built up and to continually be seeking other people who can kind of, you know, guide you through those decisions. That's great advice. I like it. Thank you for being on the podcast this week. And thank you for your insight and your experience and for your service to the Navy. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.